Hello Sweat, I'm Jack Grady and this is the Sweatcast, the weekly podcast that provides industry knowledge about the latest trends in the world of sport and fitness. Okay, welcome back for another week of the Sweatcast. I am your host Jack Grady. With me is co-founder of Go Sweat, Alex Hind, and Julie Crefield, who is the founder of Too Fat to Run, an author, and is also a part of a documentary. So Julie, welcome aboard. Um, we're really happy to have you on. Uh, I think this is going to be a really fun one. If you could maybe just start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and, and sort of how you got into what you do, and then also uh, a little bit about Too Fat to Run and, and, and whatever else you're, you feel like you're a part of. Sure. So... Um... I'm often asked if I was kind of sporty as a child, and I was, I was really, really sporty as a child. I loved all kinds of sports, but the problem was I wasn't any good at them. So by the time I went to secondary school, I didn't get picked for any of the teams. My behavior at school wasn't any good, so the, you know, the teachers didn't want me representing the school and all of that. So I kind of fell out of love with sport, really, during my teenage years, and couldn't really find anything that I wanted to do. I didn't have the money for gyms and all of that kind of stuff, so just became really inactive. Went off to uni, discovered alcohol and boys, and, you know, it just went completely off my radar. Um, and then, you know, got a job, office job, and kind of my weight was just, you know, getting bigger and bigger. And I think more so than the weight, it was, I was just so unfit, you know, couldn't run up the stairs. I was kind of modifying my behaviour because I was getting winded by walking up the stairs and stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, I'm uh, an East London girl, I was working in East London and the Olympics came to town and, you know, I was working as a project manager at the time and my job was to inspire people around the games and I kind of needed inspiring myself really because yeah. I was a bit of a hypocrite. I was saying, you know, go and use the games to get yourself active and I was like, well, I'm not really doing that, am I? Yeah. So um, some colleagues from the sports team said, oh, we're doing this fit club run, why don't you do it? I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, it was 3K and I almost died, you know, I was just so unfair and I was really embarrassed. Um, How long did it take you the first time? I can't remember. I know I came in last, I know that much, and I was so embarrassed because all my work colleagues were there waiting for me to finish. And there were these kids that were in the park just shouting, you know, run fatty run, and just I was just so humiliated. And I just knew something had to change, um, so I took up running. Very, very sporadically. I mean, part of the problem was I didn't know any other runners and it felt like an odd thing for a large girl to be doing. So I used to go after dark, I'd run in really secluded places. I didn't have any proper running kit, no running trainers. It was just awful. When I look back now, it's no wonder I struggled so much. Um, and then when it got to the point where we were going to find out whether London got the Games or not, I said to my colleagues, if we get the Games, I'll run the marathon in 2012. And they were like laughing, thinking that was hilarious because I was still quite overweight and quite inactive. Um, but of course we got the games and nobody ever let me forget that I'd said <laughs> I would run. Um, but it, you know, it started off as a joke, but actually I knew if, if I was ever going to run a marathon, it would be in that, marathon, in that um, Olympic year because I did get really wrapped up in the hype of the games and you know all these new facilities were being built and the park and just seeing kind of young people getting inspired you know it did it just got me hook line and sinker yeah um so i started you know as i was training for for the marathon you know it took me a good few years to really kind of find my feet i didn't i was too scared to join a running club i didn't talk publicly about the fact that i run you know so i didn't have anybody to chat about anything with 
Um, and I did a race one day in Victoria Park and I came last and when I got to the finish line, the finish line wasn't there. They'd all packed up and gone home. And I was like, oh my God, this can't just happen to me. Like, that's so embarrassing. And I set up a blog that night, never thinking that like anybody other than my friends and family would read it. But I just thought that was a really funny thing. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to start writing about all the funny stuff that happens to me. And literally within about two months, I had like followers from the States, followers from Germany, you know, women emailing me saying, oh my God, I can't believe there's more of us out there. I thought I was the only fat runner on the planet, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and for a long time, the blog was about my running, my, you know, my weight loss, and it was very kind of me focused. Um, and then I realized actually certain things would really wind me up about the industry and the sport and I started to become a little bit more political and a bit more ranty and kind of asking for other people's opinions on things and trying to share my knowledge so I do like blog posts you know five ways to do this and it become much more outwardly focused and that's when it really started to grow um, got a little bit of kind of media um, in the States and it's just I mean I can't believe the amount of people that have now read one of my articles um, and yeah it become about kind of other people rather than me and then it become easier to do it because you know it's not all about me um, and then you know the Olympics came came and went I got made redundant from my job on the games um, and I was pregnant at the time of my daughter so it was a bit of kind of an upheaval like what am I going to do I'm unemployed I'm an expert on the Olympics and the Olympics isn't here anymore like I'm unemployable um, but the blog had it had continued to have this momentum and this interest so I was like oh I wonder if I could turn it into a business and so basically over like the course of a year you know I went and kind of got some business advice did a business plan raised some money not a lot um, and created a website and started selling t-shirts I mean t-shirts and hoodies was the first product yeah. that I sold because it was a tangible thing that people would buy and it took a while for people to get their head around kind of virtual training um, you know when you can download an app for $1.99 or for free from the NHS and then I was trying to charge you know £25 for a beginners program there was a lot of oh why would I do that when I could just download an app yeah. um, but then over time women realised that an app is not going to ask them how they are an app is not going to say well you know um, why not do it this way instead of that way um, you know an app doesn't care basically whereas yeah. I kind of do um, so, you know, the beginners program, we've had probably about 2,000 women go through it in the last few years. And just from there, it's just kind of grown really, kind of what I offer and the books were kind of a natural progression really, it's the, it's the writing that I quite enjoy and I find quite easy. So, you know, I've always got an idea for a new book on the go. Um, so going back to the very first 3K you did and then the subsequent one that had a similar outcome, Yeah. how do you motivate yourself to just do that first one and how did you motivate yourself to carry on yeah. after both of those things happened? I think the first one was pure ignorance. I just assumed I would be able to run, like I didn't do any training and you just assume as a you know as a young teenager or as a kind of you know girl in her 20s oh running's easy mm -hmm. you know we can all run and then I, I can literally remember like after about 30 seconds the pain in my windpipe like oh my god what's happening to my body this is really hard. <laughs> Um, so yeah the first one was horrific um, and I knew to improve I would have to train um, but then I never felt quite I never felt motivated enough to train 
So then I would sign up to races thinking that would be the thing that gets me motivated. <laughs> yeah. And it never was. So then I'd end up going to 10Ks without having done much training. Yeah. So the races just weren't really enjoyable because I'd never done enough training. Um, and I kept going up in distance thinking, oh, this will be the thing that gets me out three times a week. But actually, the marathon was the thing that made me start taking it seriously. And I joined a running club. And actually, everything changed then when I joined the running club. And this was before I had like an online community, really. Um, so the running club gave me, you know, people I could ask advice for, uh, from, people I could go running with, you know, kind of I could hide behind, you know, the team rather than just being an individual all the time. So I kind of took a lot of what I'd learned about that group experience and then put it into kind of these online programs. Because I think a lot of runners, particularly women who are overweight, feel quite lonely and isolated. Um, and they might know other runners, but the runners they know are really super fit and you know you get that kind of comparisonitis yeah. where you're like oh god she can run a half marathon in an hour and i can't even do a 10k in an hour yeah. you know um so when you were when you found your running club what was it like the first time you ever went down to that awful awful I've, oh it was awful i can remember it was winter so it was just before christmas and the marathon was the following april so i'd left it right to the last minute and they explained the route, it was a really big group, they explained the route and we went out and I kind of, you know, got lost and then ended up having to come back to the centre before everybody else. And I can remember just jumping in my car and leaving before anyone saw me. It was just it was just painful and then I had to make myself go back. It was just horrible. And I think when you're a slow runner, it doesn't matter how accommodating a running club is, you are always going to be an inconvenience when you are really slow compared to everybody else just logistically it's a nightmare to look after somebody that's really really slow um, and I think that's part of the challenge of the sport is that you know even sessions that are marked as beginners yeah. are not really beginners yeah. you know um, a lot of women come to me and they you know they can bear not they can barely walk that does that sounds wrong but you know um, running is a real challenge like we're talking can't run for 30 seconds um, so if you turn up at a running club, literally within the first two minutes, you're going to have the hump. You're going to be really kind of annoyed with yourself and embarrassed. Um, so it's difficult to come back from that, really. So, it takes a lot of courage to yeah, I, go. That's yeah. what I was going to say. How did you, after that first time when you had to go back and, and you just decided to leave before anyone could see you, yeah. how did you like get the courage to, to go think, back again and, and keep yeah, going back? The, the thing marathon um, and I, I use a, a term called big fat stupid goals so my marathon was my big fat stupid goal and the thing with these big fat stupid goals is they're so huge that they create a lot of fear but not in a bad way they create fear that motivates you because if I didn't go back to that running club I would be on that start line at that marathon completely unprepared you know when you read all these headlines that people die at marathons it's you know it's a distance that you have to really respect so I didn't have much alternative because I knew I couldn't train by myself. I had to go back and I had to face the fact that I was unfit and that I needed to lose some more weight and I needed to be going regularly. And actually within about six weeks of going to that session every week, you know, I was not the slowest anymore and you know I could keep up on training runs and stuff like that and I can remember doing an 18 mile training run with the club and although most of them were faster a few of them would run back and meet me and then run again so I felt like I was running with a group even yeah. if most of the time I was running by myself and I can remember finishing that 18 mile training run going oh my god 18 miles like all along the canal up to King's Cross and 
And I just felt so proud of myself. And I think it was after that run that I thought, actually, I am going to be able to run this marathon. 18 miles is the serious distance. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't yeah. want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so kind of going off of that, if, if I'm someone who's, let's say, out of shape, overweight, or, or obese, what's sort of the first step to kind of help me take more control over my health yeah. and fitness? I think part of it is finding your tribe, like finding, firstly finding the activity you want to do. So, you know, often your first point of call is a gym and I don't find gyms the most friendliest of no. places. You're not going to find very many people that look like you in a gym. So I think you've got to find like a, a fitness class or, you know, there are so many people running things that are much more targeted at overweight women or you've got to find whatever your thing is. You know, running is my thing. Some people it's swimming, some people it's, you know, Lindy Hop dancing. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter what it is. It has to be something that you look forward to every week. So I know I've got friends that are really into that kind of fight club stuff True. because it's the loud music, it's the fact that there are, you know, 60 women in a room so no one's really watching them. You've got to find your thing, find your tribe. Um, and I think kind of be realistic about your goals. You know, I think a lot of us want really quick wins they're like right i'm going to take up running and within a couple of months i'm going to shed all the weight and i'm going to have done this and and you know the reality of it is that it's a lot longer winded than that and you have setbacks and injuries um so i think it's being being realistic really yeah and how do people sort of create a um sustainable path you know i feel like a lot of times whether it be with something like this or a new year's resolution people are like all right i want to get in shape and i want to eat healthier so i'm going to cut xyz and i want to yeah. read three books every month and so on and yeah. so i want to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and then all of a sudden they do that for a week and now yeah. they're doing none of it because it was just too much so how do you sort of yeah. take all those things that you want to do it and yeah and i think there's a, it, yeah. i think you know i'm going back to my big fat stupid goals with, um, as you say, lots of people come up with all these different habits that they want to change, like a million and one things, and you can't focus on everything. You, there's not enough time in the day, and also your motivation. So if you've spent all day dieting and being good, your willpower to then go to the gym is almost diminished, whereas if you weren't dieting, you might likely think, oh, okay, I'll go to the gym. So it's really hard to change multiple habits at the same time. But in saying that, if you have a goal that is so big and scary that if you don't change those habits, you're not going to achieve your goal, then it becomes easier. And if you choose a goal that helps you to, you know, so for me, particularly after I had my daughter, I was like, right, a marathon enables me to spend time away from my daughter, which sounds awful, but <laughs> as a new mum, you're like, actually, what I want is a weekend away. <laughs> um, it enabled me to spend time with my friends who were running friends. It enabled me to buy new kit. There were lots of extra reasons for running a marathon. Um, I also like to run um, abroad, so I do half marathons um, you know, across uh, Europe and stuff. So one goal that ticks off so many of my boxes, so socialising, travelling, uh, gives me something to write about, I like to write. So it's finding that goal that helps you to do all of those things. So a good example of this is I hate yoga. Okay, I hate yoga. Yeah. I hate going to yoga classes, but I know that yoga is really good for me. And whenever I do make the effort to do it, I can feel a difference in my running. So... Like, I know if I do yoga every day between now and the marathon, I will run a really strong marathon. So the yoga habit is going to be really difficult for me to do, 
but because I know it will impact on my marathon time, I'm more likely to do it. So this morning I got up at 6am and I did 20 minutes of yoga because I know it's part of my bigger goal. Whereas yeah. if it was just, oh, I really want to do yoga every day. Yeah. It's quite interesting, the goals that you just mentioned, you didn't mention the word lose weight, um, look better, any of those kind of things. It was all about the social aspect, the achievement, the self-motivation and the bettering of the end goal you want to achieve. Yeah. However, when most people think about sport and fitness, they think about losing weight and looking better. Yeah. There's a massive assumption that, um, I guess I can only speak about women, but that women play sport to look good or to lose weight. And actually, you know, when I was growing up, the only time I ever saw my mum exercising was when she was on a fitness thing to lose weight. You know, in my, in my you know, family, real working class family, the only sport that took place was the watching of football. Do, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like there was, no, particularly the women didn't, didn't play sport. So the only time I ever saw any of my aunties or anybody doing sport was because, oh, I've put on weight, I need to lose weight, let me start aerobics. Yeah. Um, so it's really hard to shift away from that. And I think a lot of the women that I work with tell me that actually they're past caring what they look like. They're women in their 40s and 50s. They, they're, not, um, they're not driven in the same way that maybe younger women in the sport are. Um, you know, and if you look at kind of who the influencers are, there was a thing that Forbes did about um, the top 20 influencers in sport, and I showed this graphic to my women, and the only people they knew was Joe Wicks. They didn't know any of the other people, and yeah. these are the, you know, the people that are on Instagram with billions of hits. My women didn't know who they were. So when you talk about influencers, you know, not to blow my own trumpet, but I'm influencing women within that age bracket in a completely different way to these YouTube and Instagram celebrities are. And do you think that the fact that you're influencing them rather than a 20 year old who is paid to go to the gym and has all their food cooks for them yeah. is far, far better because it actually fits your niche? Absolutely. And I think, you know, women understand that, you know, I'm able to do all of these things as well as being a single parent, as well as, you know, not being a millionaire yet and all, you know, all of these kind of things. Yet. Um, you know, so it's about reality and a lot of the coaching that I give actually isn't to do with running, it's to do with how do you fit it into a busy schedule, how do you, you know, um, how do you make meals stretch, how do you convince your husband not to get divorced because you're always out running, you know, so it's, the, it's like the practical sides of it, which, you know, if you're, you know, a 20 year old um, influencer, you probably don't know what it's like to have to manage a family as well. Um, so I think, you know, it's... Yeah, my target market is very, very different to what a lot of the gyms are out there pushing in terms of their marketing. So kind of going back to obesity in general, I think um, that a lot of us would agree it kind of starts at a younger age, right? So how do we sort of help people overcome that in general, whether it be as a child or a preteen, is it through working out or education or something yeah. else? Hey everyone, Steph here, co-founder of Gay Sweat and sponsor of The Sweatcast. Gay Sweat wants to make discovering sports simple, so we've created a sports marketplace that allows users to easily discover and book sports and fitness near them. No more scrolling through Google, trying to find your local facilities. Gay Sweat lets you search for exactly what you want, where and when you want it. From silent disco boot camps to candlelit yoga and even Quidditch, we've got it all. For 20% off all Ghost Sweat activities, enter the discount code SWEATCAST at checkout. Happy sweating! 
Um, so I think there is this way of thinking, which is if you want to lose weight, you move more and you eat less. And that's the general way that people think. So, you know, um, Public Health England, your GP, most personal trainers are of that way of thinking. And I used to be of that way of thinking. So I used to beat myself up and try and eat less, move more to the point of exhaustion. So I'd be living off salad and muesli and, you know, just tiny amounts of calories and then also be trying to train for a marathon. And that in itself yeah. is an absolute disaster. Um, a lot of women who are overweight haven't just arrived there, they've spent 20 years of yo-yo dieting. And when I look at, we do things in our online running club where we get the women to post photos of themselves at 16. And at 16, they thought they were overweight and you look at them and they're a size eight. And it's to do with self-esteem. So a lot of women and girls these days get it as well. So the messaging is that you've got to be perfect. And you know now we have all the airbrushed um, models. So it's impossible to know what a normal body looks like. So if you don't get positive messages about your body as a girl when you're young, you spend most of your 20s trying to be this perfect thing and you mess up, this is, these are my views, they're not very scientific, but this is what I think. Um, I think you mess up your metabolism because you spend a lot of the time eating less than you should and punishing your body for exercise and looking at exercise as a way to um, control your body. Whereas I think once you get past that, you use exercise to give you benefits and rewards. Sometimes it's about weight loss and improving the way you look, but mainly it's about um, mental health, um, feeling good about yourself, being able to say, okay, I might be overweight, but I've just achieved this goal that the majority of the population can't do. So I think there's a massive switch that probably happens around the age of 40 for women. Um, so I think the thing that's missing is around kind of, and I'm not an expert on this, but it's about food and how we engage with food. A lot of, a lot of women use food as a way of um, dealing with the crap that happens in their life. So something good happens, they celebrate, something bad happens, they commiserate, and they often use food as a drug, you know, um, in the same way we use alcohol and whatever. Um, and no one's talking about that. So no one's talking about the fact that, you know, you can't go anywhere without there being food involved, you know. If you were a drug addict, you could completely abstain. You know, if you're an alcoholic, you can say, I don't drink, and you could completely remove yourself from those situations. But you have to eat every day. Um, and, you know, you walk into a supermarket, and I get my women to do this, I say, go into the supermarket and just have a look around. Don't put anything in your trolley, but try and work out what the ratio in your supermarket is of real food yeah. and stuff packaged up as food. <laughs> yeah, and then have the doctor tell you, oh, it's easy, just eat healthily, when you've got stuff that's packaged up as yeah. healthy, but actually is just chemicals and, and not real stuff. Um, so I think it's a really difficult place to be as somebody that's overweight because you get it from all directions. You, you know, you've got how you're supposed to look, then you've got people kind of fat shaming you, you've got the doctor going, oh, it's easy, just, you know, eat less, move more. I think it's really, really challenging. So you're, what you just described is more about the mental aspects of it than yeah. anything else. It's yeah. more about constant messaging, constant confusion, constant yo-yoing yeah. rather than any kind of clarity. Yeah, and I think um, most women can probably um, kind of relay their weight gain either based on a lifestyle choice, um, so either having kids or moving away from a job or something like that, or something traumatic that happens in their life. So a lot of women will say, you know, I only put on weight when I got divorced or I only put on weight when I started becoming a carer for my parents. So it's often for women, it's when they stop putting themselves first. Um, so 
yeah, I don't think we talk enough about the impact of mental health and around lifestyle and, you know, not to play the kind of the, the gender kind of card, but women do tend to take on the lion's share of responsibilities when it comes to childcare, looking after elderly parents, they're managing multiple hats. And what happens is their own, they don't prioritise themselves. So, you know, that, that half an hour they have for themselves each day becomes 15 minutes, then becomes 10 minutes. You know, and sometimes I'll do a challenge which is like, you know, give yourself 10 minutes a day. And women are like, I don't have 10 minutes. How can you not have 10 minutes as a human <laughs> being? You know, but these women just don't because they've got kids, dogs, husband, neighbours, everybody wants something from them. So how do you find time as a single mum with five-year-old? girl, you run your own business, yeah. you're speaking at different events all over the country. Yeah. How do you find your doing podcasts? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you find your ten minutes or an hour or I think I've this? I've learned um I've learned lots of things over the last four years. So I've been a parent for five years today actually, it's my daughter's birthday today. Um, and I've learned lots of coping strategies. So asking for help is a massive one. A lot of women don't like asking for help because it feels like you know they can't cope. Um, batching, so batch cooking at the yeah. beginning of the week, so you're only cooking once a week. Um, what else? Um, kind of earmarking stuff and saying that is my time. Literally, I write it in the diary. That is my time. Being really open about what you need from people. So even my daughter, she's a real chatterbox. Sometimes I need 10 minutes of quiet time. And I say to her, Rose, it's now quiet time <laughs> because I know I need that. And, and you know, even as a five-year-old, she understands, you know, mummy needs time too. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff around organising, planning, scheduling. It's some real kind of practical tips. Um, Do you think sometimes... And not all the case, sometimes people use it as an excuse, I don't have time, when really, they don't really want to have time because they're not really looking forward to that aspect that they yeah. think that they should be doing. I think time and money are both used as excuses, but excuses makes it sound really shaming, so I try not to use that. I think often people are so fearful of change that they use those as excuses to get out of it. And actually most people, um, you know, if you watch television, you know, if you cut out all your TV time, you know, uh, or your reading of magazines or whatever your thing is, there's always a way to find half an hour. So often, often it is an excuse. But again, I, I hate using that word because it's got a lot of kind of negative connotations to it. And, you know, we, there's always this, you know, whenever you see something on the BBC about, you know, obesity, all you see is these kind of headless shots of overweight people sitting on benches eating burgers. You know, so the imagery around being overweight is, is um, you know, associated with being lazy and making bad choices. Um, so I try to move away as far from that as possible because I don't think it's as simple and clear-cut as that. And as you said earlier, is that if you have something that you look forward to and you absolutely want to do, yeah. you will find the time to do that because it's in your diary, you know, every week or yeah. every fortnight or whatever yeah. it may be. Whereas if it's just something where it's the last thought of your day, oh, I should be doing that, yeah. it's not going to be something you plan your day around. And then it becomes another thing you failed at. So you're like, I was supposed to, I was supposed to go to the gym this week, didn't find time, God, I'm so crap. You know. Yeah, um, and then if the mindset becomes very negative. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, even there's a lot of kind of talk in the public health and kind of physical activity world about, you know, get people off their sofas. You know, what is wrong with sitting on a sofa? Because actually, you know, if you can get an hour relaxing on the sofa, so be it. But I think, a lot of time on the sofa. And actually a lot of the women that I work with say, I wish I was on the sofa. You know, and they talk about the fact that they're up at six, getting the kids ready, go to work, they do a day's work, they come home, they cook for the family, they do all the laundry. By 10 o'clock, they are so exhausted. You know, they've got these long days and they know they're doing exactly the same the next day. So it's really demeaning when you have these public health things that go, you know, our target is to get women off the sofas. Like, give them the sofas back. Let them have an hour on the sofa, for goodness sake, you know. Um, so I think there's there's a lot of stuff that's quite provocative that really gets my back up. Um, so where do you hope that your mission, what you're working on now, can get to in five years' time? Um, so I, I feel like I'm kind of running two businesses at the moment. So Two Factor Run is all around kind of getting out to the masses. So it's around kind of... Um, really cheap affordable online programs where the p- women are buying into the idea of, of my brand and they're using kind of small Facebook groups as a way of being accountable um, and we're branching out into doing kind of on the ground stuff where there are you know real you know real live running groups led by women that look more like me than your traditional running coach so I think it has the potential to really scale up there's loads of interest in the US there's interest in anywhere that there's overweight um, women there seems to be a lot of interest so in Germany so there's a a list of the most overweight countries there are the countries that there's a lot of interest in what I'm doing so I think it's got huge potential to grow my problem is always capacity because it is just me um, me in the corner of my front room that is my empire you know um, and people often think because of what I've achieved in terms of the scale they think oh I must have a team I have no team <laughs> it's yeah. just me um, so you know I think that side of the business is bubbling along nicely I think it's getting a lot of momentum and there's a lot of media interest and I think the other side of what I'm doing it kind of ties in but it's more you know the books the motivational speaking and I've moved into kind of life coaching where I can work much more intensely with women because you know my programs are very light touch they're you know I send an email out that says this week we're looking at this and I pose questions and I set them their challenge and then it's up to them what they do with it some women need a little bit more accountability with that so I I run a program which is much more around life coaching where I'll work with 20 women and you know if they're struggling I can pick up the phone or jump on a Skype call whereas I can't do that when I've got you know a thousand women on a a program that I'm running and so I don't know it's it's you know I do obviously have kind of business goals and they are quite lofty ones but I'm also kind of just excited to see where it where it leads really Lots going on there. Yes. Great. So now we're going to hop into a different segment of the podcast where we're going to bounce some rapid fire questions off of you. So um, first one is, what is bad recommendations you hear most often um, in your line of work? Um, Oh, bad line. I think something around kind of trainers like oh you don't need to spend a lot of money on a pair of trainers I hear that quite a lot yeah and actually then women get injured so you know I think an investment in a pair of good trainers oh, good shoes, yeah. is really really important yeah 
Okay, cool. And then in terms of books, what would you say is a good book or a book that you most often gift to other people? <laughs> now, of course, I am going to recommend my own book. So I've got, I've got eight books on Amazon all about running, but actually my latest book, which is The Fat Girl's Guide to Marathon Running, I would describe that as a Bible of running for overweight women. So even if you've got no intention of ever running a marathon, um, and actually, even if you're not even overweight, lots of people are reading it going, it's hilarious, it's really insightful. Yeah loads of kind of mindset stuff but also loads of technique stuff and ideas for training sessions so yes the fat girl's guide to marathon running <laughs> <laughs> and who's the author <laughs> um okay so what's a purchase you've made in the last 12 months for less than 100 pounds that has positively impacted your life um, my watch, so I've just got an Apple watch, that was my Christmas gift to myself um, and I think I like the fact that it tracks um, my inactive time at my desk yeah. So, you know, over the course of a day, because I all, you know, pretty much always do a training session, I am active, I get my 30 minutes in a day, but then I might sit for eight hours and write a book. So it just kind of prompts me to get up and go Does for a glass send, of water. Because mine, I haven't got an Apple, I've got a similar one, but it just vibrates if I'm, and tells yeah. me move. Yeah, <laughs> it tells me to, to, to get up, basically. Oh, that's pretty cool. Maybe I should get one of those. Sometimes we like to go away. So do you have a certain quote that you live by or maybe that you think about often? Loads. I love quotes. I love quotes. There's one that I really like, which I, t which I speak to my women about, and I often say it wrong, but it's an African proverb, and it says, if you want to run fast, run alone, and if you want to run far, run together. Yeah. And I really love that because, um, yeah, people think that running is a solo sport, but actually it's not. You need that kind of network of people to help you. That's very true. <laughs> so, last one. What failure or apparent failure led to later success for you, or uh, what is your favorite failure of yours? So, I got made redundant four times in ten years, and you know, for some people, they'd be like, "God, what's wrong with me?" <laughs> um, but actually, every time I got made redundant, I went on to do something bigger and better, and you know, got paid more, and you know, tested my boundaries. And I think the final time got made redundant, seven months pregnant, wouldn't be able to go back into the industry that I was in. It really rocked me, it rocked my confidence. I wasn't sure what I'd go into next. You know, I was contemplating going into retail or working in McDonald's, you know, anything to kind of make some money. But I think it really kind of challenged me to think, right, do I want to ever be made redundant for the fifth time? Yeah. No. So I, you know, I can't see me ever working for anybody ever again. Don't ever want to be, to have, <laughs> <Don't> some, <laughs> yeah. I don't want to ever have somebody else be responsible for my income. Um, so I think, you know, and now I'm really passionate about talking to young people. I go into schools and talk to young people about being entrepreneurs and creating wealth for yourself and kind of challenging particularly women's views on what money means to them. You know, and if I hadn't have been made redundant, that would never have happened. Yeah, that's great. So a special thanks to Julie for coming on. I was wondering if you could just let everyone know where they'd be able to find you on social media and uh, your website. Yeah, it's really easy to find all of my stuff about running. All you have to do is Google Fat Runner and I come up really high on the SEO <laughs> rankings. But the blog is um, www.twofactorun.co.uk. Um, on Twitter, I'm Fatty Must Run. Um, and for my life coaching stuff on Instagram and Twitter, it's Julie Crefield. Okay, great. So, Julie, again, thanks for coming on. Uh, we really enjoyed it. Been brilliant. That's it for the Sweatcast today. I'm Jack Brady. Hit that like or love button and remember to share this podcast. 
The Sweatcast is every Wednesday at 9am. You can also find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CastBox. Remember to keep sweating, and see you next week.